Welcome to Encounter. We want nothing more than to help you find and follow Jesus. If you're a college student in Central Illinois, head to isuencounter.org or download our student app to learn about all that's happening here. Thanks for listening. Amen. Friends, you can have a seat. So glad that you're in the room tonight. Uh, Hey, last week we had, uh, hey, we got some balcony people. Hey, how's it going up there? Uh, last week, we had over 300 people in this room, which was huge. We haven't done that in a number of years. And over 250 small group signups out of that, too, which is amazing, which is amazing. And so, I'm, yeah. But those of you who've been around for a while, you've heard me say this before, and I don't mind, I don't like to repeat myself, but I'll repeat my, uh, myself on this particular piece because I think it's important for you. The way that we view the stuff that we're doing here. Like the worship that you're coming into tonight is great. And I hope that you feel like that's a connection with the Lord. But that's not the full meal, you guys. This shouldn't be what you consider your worship for the week. You're like, this isn't your time of prayer. I love being able to open the word and dissect it with you on, on a Tuesday night all year. But that's not the full meal. I can't give you in 35, 45 minutes, I can't give you a full meal on that of what you need for the week. I believe all of this is just an appetizer. It's just an appetizer for something else, something greater, a deeper life of prayer in your own life, a deeper life of worship in your own life, a deeper life in the Word in your own life. And so as a ministry, I feel like that's what we do. We, we create all these little appetizers for you. The small group, if you come to me and say, hey, Ben, I don't feel like my small group is this depth of community that I've been looking for. It's like, you're right. It's an appetizer. It's an invitation. It's one step toward that. I'd encourage you to take that step. I think it's worth the risk. But even in an hour and 15-minute small group, you can't accomplish all of the things that you need in real, authentic community in your life. So I want you to be a part of the appetizers, but I also want you to be hungry for what's underneath it, for the God of the universe who wants to interact with you in a deeper way. Because that's what we're doing. That's the reason why we're here. Um, I have some introductions, I guess, of some kind I, w- I want to do tonight. I, I did a little bit of like orientation last week. I'll do a couple more of those things. I want to introduce some of the staff, not because I want to shine a spotlight on them or elevate them, but really just because I want you to know who they are. We, we exist around here to serve you guys. We love you guys, so I want you to be able to identify them. So my staff interns, where are you guys at? Will you guys stand? Yes. Yeah. So you should know. All right, that's enough. You sit down now. I'm just teasing. Uh, Pro staff, would you stand where you're at? Yeah. So I want you to I want you to see these guys uh, because I want you to understand that that we care a lot about you. We raise money to to be in these roles. We work full time in these roles because we care about God intersecting with you, and so do a lot of people in this community. Um, I mean, we've been on, uh, we've been on the, the three campuses here in town for the past couple of weeks handing out dilly bars. That's because the owners of Dairy Queen uh, over on Veterans are followers of Jesus, and they gave us 2,500 dilly bars. They just donated 2,500, 2,500 dilly bars just to help us start conversations with people. Like, because they realize they want the love of Jesus to intersect college students' lives that badly. And they're like, we're willing to cover the cost of that if you'll go meet students. And we're like, we'll go meet students. 
all right? You are in a place where there are people around you who want to watch you succeed and watch you grow and watch you thrive while you're in college. And so as I bring the word, I also want to orient you to some icons that I tend to use every week. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take just a moment on the front end to explain why you will see these things in my teaching each week. Let's see if I can get them up here. There we go. All right, these icons, I grew up around the church. Like, I wasn't hyper-involved in church, but I grew up around church. I went to church, and I, you know, I was, I, I was a little familiar with the Bible. But I was around the Bible for a really long time without really understanding it. Like, understanding how it was laid out. I'd hear about Saul, and I didn't understand that we were talking about Saul the king, and not Saul the guy who would become Paul. Like, and, and maybe you're, some of you are in the same boat where you're like, I just don't, I didn't grow up around that. I don't know a lot of those names or people or places or timelines for crying out loud because they're all over the place. And so when you see these icons, here's why I use these in my teaching is because you would understand where I'm at in scripture. I, if I'm jumping between the time of Moses and the time of Jesus, I just want to, I'm a very visual person. So it helps to have a visual representation of that. So let me walk through what this timeline is real fast, because the whole Bible is represented up there on the screen. In the beginning was the Word, and God. He preceded what we think of as the beginning. God pre-existed as time as we understand it, but He existed there. And He decided in that that He was going to create everything. He creates this garden. He puts male and female in that garden. We see all the way back in creation that he makes you and I, and this is very important for where we're going tonight, actually, that he makes you and I in his image. So men, you are created in the image of God. Women, you are created in the image of God. You are image bearers of his. You, you cast his likeness. It's in you. There's something beautiful about you. You have the capacity for wisdom like your heavenly father. You have the capacity for creativity and compassion and all of these things. There are certain things the animal world doesn't have that you have because you're made to look like the God of the universe. And so you know the story, though. It doesn't take long before we mess that up, before we choose evil, before we choose not God. And so in that moment, something very important happens to us. We, and it, it's all the way back in our creation narrative. We see that humanity becomes fractured. And I think this is a remark. Like I look around our world, and I see this so plainly. Not just the brokenness, but also the beauty. If you ask me, Ben, are human beings good or are human beings bad? I will tell you biblically the answer is Yes. Made in the image of God, unbelievably creative, wise, loving, but also fractured and fallen. And I don't just see it out there, I see it in here. I see that brokenness exist within me. Why can't I fix myself? Why can't I live a perfect life? Where does that perfect standard even come from that I'm measuring myself off of? You see it in those first three icons. Well, as we move forward, what happens when sin enters the world? Does God say, no more, I'm done with you, I'm writing you off? I'm out of here. I'm just going to let the, earth, the world spin as it is. No, we actually see that he continues to speak. He makes a promise through Abraham that he'll have a child, Isaac. We see him speak through Moses when he leads the people out of Egypt in their captivity, the Jewish people. We see him speak through the judges, the kings, and the prophets. I got a lot of Bible represented in that one little icon right there, okay? But all of that leads up to Jesus himself. 
his earthly ministry. God himself takes on human form to take on our spiritual problem. Comes down to earth, fully man, fully God, represented in one person. And he lives that life, he dies and is resurrected for us. A short time later, the little fire icon there is is Pentecost, which is the moment where the Holy Spirit is given to us. So God's active presence in our lives, his wisdom all poured out into us, his ongoing presence with us. And then, my friends, that ushers in this time, what we would call the age of the church, where Jesus says, I want you to go, I want you to baptize, and I want you to, to tell my story. I want other people to know about the love, my love for them. I want you to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and I want you to love others of yourself, and I want you to do that until I return and I make all things right. And we have a picture of heaven, a new earth, a new heaven, all things remade. And if you'll notice, the end looks very much like the beginning of our story, when God redeems and restores everything and uses his people to do it. We become part of that restoration process, at least in part, and then he finishes it in full. It's this beautiful story laid out in scripture. And so when I jump around to different places, if I'm going back and talking about Moses, or if I'm going back and talking about the fall, or if if the Hebrews author is making reference there, you'll see those icons lit up this year, just as a way to show you where we're at in scripture, okay? So there's the end of my orientation for tonight, okay? (laughs) On to what I really, really want to talk about, because I'm super excited about it. My sermon tonight's entitled Awkward Dinner Party, okay? And it is It's about this very specific moment that happens to Jesus. Uh, Luke, who's a doctor who meticulously records his gospel, tells us about this this story that happens with Jesus in uh, in Luke 7 that we're going to look at. And so I've been thinking all week, uh, last week as I was prepping for this, about all the different cultural rules and stuff that go along with food. And I don't know if you've traveled to other countries, but different cultures have different rules. And so some cultures, for example, um, if you finish your plate clean— like if you clean, if you're at somebody's house and you clean all the food off your plate, you eat the last bite, someone will immediately come by and dump more food on your plate. Because that is a cultural sign to them that you need more food. You should leave a tiny morsel on your plate. If you're like, I'm done, uh, I don't want any more food, then there should be a tiny little bit of food left on your plate. Uh, otherwise, you're getting more, okay? We have uh, several ministries in the Philippines. And so I've been to the Philippines a handful of times. Uh, and so, and it's, it's an incredibly poor country. There's still poverty there, but poverty has been there for a very long time. And so food is scarce, and you do not waste it. If you go to an all-you-can-eat buffet in the Philippines, and they do have those, mainly for Americans, <laughs> I think. But if you, if you go to an all-you-can-eat buffet, and you leave food on your plate at the end of the buffet, there's a different price for you when you pay your bill. You can eat as much as you want for one price, but if you leave food on your plate, there's another price for you, because <laughs> you don't, which is brilliant, I think because you don't want to waste food. I was kind of scared to death the first time that I went to the Philippines um, because on all cultures, you have rules for guests and you have rules with hosts and you don't breach those things. You know what I mean? And I knew that I was walking into this other culture and I don't mind trying new food, but I was like, what if we're in a place where I have to eat something? You know what I mean? I'm in somebody's home and they serve me something that's just awful and I'm like... That's the situation. That was, that was my, I, I wanted to try stuff. I wanted to be adventurous with food. But the first time I went to the Philippines, that was my concern. 
Well, let me tell you this story. We get invited to a wedding while we're there, and for whatever reason in the Philippines, they still really esteem Americans. And so even though I didn't know the people at personally that we were going to the wedding for, because they knew we were in ministry and because they knew we were Americans, they wanted to put us in a place of honor. And all I'm, I'm like, please don't. Put us in the back. I don't care. They put us at the head table across from the bride and the groom. I'm sitting next to the mother of the bride who has made all the food that's on the table. This is the nightmare that I have been dreaming about since I left the United States, okay? Because whatever is put on my plate, the person who made it, who's like, they say that the bride is the most honored at the wedding, but the mother of the bride's in close competition, okay? If you've ever been to weddings, you know how that kind of works. So, so I'm having to eat whatever is put on my plate. And most of it is great. I really like Filipino food. It's awesome. There was one dish that kind of looked like wet cat food that I was not super excited about. Okay? And I, but I'm not dishing my own plate. Other people are putting stuff on my plate because they want to watch me eat it. And some of, like a big scoop, like an ice cream scoop of that is put on my plate. And I'm like, well, and the mother-in-law is looking at me like, yeah, yeah. This is, you like that. As though she couldn't speak any English. And so... So I'm eating it and smiling at her, and she's smiling at me, and, and I finish it. And it wasn't good, okay? It wasn't bad. I didn't have to, like, fight it down. But I had no idea what it was. Very unclear, this mysterious food that I ate. I didn't want any more, for sure. And I found one of the Filipinos. There's, I mean, a bunch of them speak English. They learn in their universities in English. So they're all great English speakers. But I, I, the, the Filipinos that I knew, I said, what, what did I eat? They'd be like, uh, I don't know how to say that. Like, what do you mean you don't know how to say that? What did I eat? None of them could answer me. And finally, one of them is a really good English speaker. I said, can you tell me what I ate tonight? And he said, I, um, liver, heart, lungs, spleen. And I was like, stop. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what comes after spleen, but I don't want you to say it. It's like, That's, that is enough right there. And I was like, that was an, another moment at a different place that we were at, I, I wasn't going to tell this story, but here we go. I was in a buffet line. Sorry if you're squeamish. I was in a buffet line there, and, uh, and again, they're putting stuff on my plate. And this woman reaches into this giant bowl of grossness, and she looks at me and she goes, Oh, wait, are you a Christian? Which is not what I was expecting. This was not a Christian event that we were at. And I was like, uh, Yes. Why? And she says, oh, well, then you won't eat blood pudding, right? And I was like, oh, yes, I'm a Christian. If that, <laughs> I don't know how that's related to me not eating blood pudding, but I have strong religious convictions right now over whatever. Ah. Okay. So all these cultures, we have these, we have these traditions, um, and there are some connected to our text tonight that I want to bring you in on, because again, there's a dinner party that Jesus is invited to, and the Middle Eastern traditions that they have are a little bit different from you and I. One of the ways that it's the same, though, um, though theirs is a little more expressed, when you invite somebody into your table, it's a different kind of invitation, Right? I mean, it's one thing to, to eat with somebody at, at Wadi's, you know, dining services. It's a whole different thing, though, to bring them to your apartment or to your home at your table. There's a relational invitation there. You with me? And that was even more true within Jewish times. To bring someone into your home was a special kind of invitation. Now, other things in the Middle Eastern world during Jesus' day, um, 
You did a kiss on the cheek. That was a, a common greeting. Some cultures still do that. Vinny, where are you at? Italian family. You got any people who kiss on the cheek in your family? Okay, there's a no to that. I'm surprised by that. But some cultures still to this day, there's that holy kiss idea definitely there in the Jewish culture. The other thing is it's a hot, dry, deserty, arid climate. And they're, you know, again, no air conditioning back in Jesus' day, and they're wearing sandals all the time. So you go to somebody's home, very typical for them to allow you to wash up. They'd give you oil for your hair. So, I mean, like you can imagine how refreshing that would feel if you'd be able to kind of like pull your hair back with that. They would have a basin for you to wash your feet. If they were wealthy enough, they would have a servant that would actually wash your feet for you. And that's part of the welcome into the home. You get refreshed before you get in there. Now, the other piece that becomes important in our story here, they would recline at low tables. That's how they ate. And especially for the wealthy, they'd have like a patio out back. And so if, if the, the person that we're going to see that invites Jesus to this dinner party, Simon, they all recline around this outer table. And there are other people there sort of hanging out, especially poor people. Because one of the customs at the time as well was if there was leftover food, the poor could have it. It's just a, a kind of generosity in their culture. And so all of that is happening in our story as we launch into this text in Luke 7. It starts this way. One of the Pharisees, and a Pharisee is like, these are the religious teachers who have power. They're the influencers in the church at that time. So one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. Remember what I said? That's a personal invitation. There's a relationship attached to that. So Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. And when a certain immoral woman, now that's a really kind Bible way of saying prostitute, when a prostitute from that city heard that he was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume, and she knelt behind him at his feet, weeping. You got that image in your mind of what's happening over dinner right now? Her tears fell on his feet, and she wiped them off with her hair, and then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him, that's Simon, saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner. And Jesus answered his thoughts. Pretty cool little miracle stuck in right there, right? Simon has said none of this out loud, but Jesus responds to his thoughts. Simon, he said to the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher, Simon replied. Now, just a little tiny note about this phrase right here. Not relational. There have been multiple moments in the book of Luke already where people approach Jesus and they use a little more endearing terms like Lord, terms that imply authority. Simon doesn't use those words. Say it, teacher, Simon replies. And then Jesus tells him a story. So we got a story within a story going on here. Jesus told him this story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces to the other, but neither of them could repay him, so he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? And Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. That's right, Jesus said. And then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, look at this woman kneeling here. 
When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, but she's washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time I first came in, she's not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love, but a person who has forgiven little shows only little love. And then Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. The men at the table said among themselves, who is this man that he goes around forgiving sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. All right, crazy, crazy story. I want you to understand, first of all, the story within the story that Jesus tells. I ran the math on this, okay? He's talking about two people who owed debts. One of them's a huge debt. One of them's a small debt. A, a denarii in this story is worth a day's wage. So one person is given $125,000. That's McLean County math, according to what people make today. One person is given $125,000. The other person is given $12,500. Both of them are checks I would like to have okay? Right? Those are both decent amounts of money. So Jesus puts that out there and says, they both owe that much money. Both of their debts are canceled. Which will love them more for doing that? And Simon rightly responds, the one with the bigger debt canceled. Yeah. Now put yourself in the story for just a minute with me. Because I, I need you to understand the social awkwardness of what is happening here. If you ask me out for lunch, and we go to the Rock, uh, an Uptown Normal, and we're sitting outside on one of those cafe things, and you and I are having a conversation just like normal, and a woman who pretty much looks like a prostitute comes up weeping, drying her tears off on my feet with her hair, and just stays there over and over again. And I don't acknowledge this. I act like this is just every Tuesday that has ever happened with you. Weird, yeah? It's weird. <laughs> what she is doing, like, wouldn't be quite as socially unacceptable as, as that happening at the Rock and Uptown because I'm not claiming to be the God of the universe and it's not exactly the same thing that we're talking about here, but the social awkwardness is absolutely there. She is taking a huge risk. She's doing something that isn't the social norm throwing herself at the foot of Jesus, at the feet of Jesus, and bawling her eyes out there. Now, why does Jesus go out of his way to tell this story to Simon? Because it sort of feels like we got three different things that are happening here all at the same time. But I think, you guys, that Jesus is trying to help you and I and Simon on a really important turning point for him, one that I don't think he's going to follow Jesus on. And the connection that Jesus wants to make with Simon is pretty simple. It's that there's a connection between understanding our need for forgiveness and loving God. I'm going to say that a couple times. There is a connection between our needing to understand our own forgiveness and loving God. And this matters a lot. Last year, you heard me talk about the greatest commandment, if you guys were around. We did a whole series on the greatest and we talked about the greatest commandment. We had shirts that said, love God, love people. Those come out of Matthew 22. That's the verse right there. It's basically just Jesus reaffirming that our greatest commandment is to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is the thing that you were put on this earth to do. And he attaches to that loving your neighbor as yourself. 
And the reason why I put that on the screen is that you can't do that without understanding your need for forgiveness. Jesus is connecting this idea that if you don't get the fact that you need God's help, that you need to know that you are loved, that you need to know that you are seen, that you need to know that you are forgiven. These are needs that are baked into your soul. You can cover them over with other stuff. They'll still be there, and they will resurface another day. And Jesus is trying to break Simon's cold heart in this moment by telling him a story of why this woman is loving extravagantly, and he hasn't even bothered hitting the the minimum social bar of giving him oil for his head and a basin for his feet. Why does Simon love so little? Because he doesn't believe he needs forgiveness at all. He's sitting in front of the God of the universe who can meet the aching need in his chest, and he's not even bothering to ask or notice. There is a connection between understanding our need for forgiveness and loving God. I I know that uh, most of the people that I talk to when we talk about Scripture memory say that they are very bad at memorizing Scripture because their memories are bad. But tonight, I'm going to give you a verse that you are going to know by the time you walk out of here. You ready? Okay. 1 John 4.19 goes like this. You just repeat. We love because he first loved us. That's it. That's 1 John 4.19. We love because he first loved us. The idea is so simple, friends. He initiates, we respond. You don't get to say, I love you first to God, ever. You only respond with, I love you too, because he is the one who has said it to you. We love because he first loved us, 1 John four nineteen. We love because he first loved us. Our love is a response back to him. That's what we see. I understand the love that has been poured out for me. I see that I need it, and therefore it gives me the capability of loving him back and loving him in return. We love because he first loved us. Jesus, later in Luke, Luke 15, he'll tell a series of stories, uh, one of them about the prodigal son. It's one of my favorite stories in all of Scripture. It's so beautiful. There are three characters in the story. I'm not going to read it because it would just take too much time, but you should this week, Luke 15. There's, there's a son. We call him the prodigal son. That's the way that you normally hear, but he's, he's the one who decides he wants to go sin. He wants to go live his own life. He wants to do whatever the heck he wants to do. There's the older brother, who's sort of the righteous snob, and there is the faithful father. And even though it's called the parable of the prodigal son, I would relabel it if I could. No one's given me that authority, because <laughs> I think it's the parable of the faithful father. In the story, you have a son who goes to his dad, who is very much still alive, and says, hey, I know that I'm going to get a really big inheritance when you die. Can I have it now? The dad says, yeah, I'll give it to you now. Gives him his inheritance, and the Bible story basically said the kid goes out and blows it on booze and women and whatever he wants to do. He lives every sexual fantasy he has until he is bankrupt and everybody leaves him. And he's living with pigs in slop. Says that he's so poor, he's, he's dreaming of eating the same things that the pigs are eating. And he thinks to himself, hey, I could go back home and grovel at my dad's feet and maybe he would take me on as a servant. Maybe I could do that. So he does. He goes back home, shows up, and the... the, the uh, 
I'll just read you this part of it. So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, kissed him. His son said to his father, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. But he can't even get the rest of his prepared speech out because the dad is like, let's have a party. Go kill the fatted calf. Invite the neighbors because my son is back. That's the picture of the loving God that Jesus wants to, like, he's trying to unlock the mysterious kingdom of heaven and who the God of the universe is. And this is the story he tells. It's a God who loves you like that. But Jesus doesn't end the story there. He says there's also an older brother. When the older brother finds out that his jerk of a brother who ran off and took family money and spent it all and came back home while he's been faithful the whole time, he's pretty ticked off. His response to his dad, this is Jesus' words, the older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, all these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to, to do a single thing you told me to do. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours, which is his brother, comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fatted calf. Can you hear his heart? He doesn't deserve your grace. He doesn't deserve your mercy. That's that's Simon the Pharisee, the older brother that Jesus is drawing on there. This coldness of heart that believes that I'm too good or I don't need God's help or I have done so much that I don't need you fill in the blank. You guys, that's not the way the life of grace works. Do you know that you are loved, seen, and forgiven by the God of the universe and that all of the Christian life flows out of that? Here's the beautiful thing about grace, friends. You're going to hear me preach it a lot because I believe that it is the core. I don't believe you ever outgrow it. I don't believe it's the kindergarten of the Christian life. I believe it is the kindergarten and the master's class. I think it's all wrapped into that one thing. It is the biggest thing. God's love for us allows us to love him back and to love each other to fulfill the greatest commandment. But if you live in this room with pride of, I don't need that, or I have gotten too familiar with that, if that is the heart, if you can relate to Simon the Pharisee, if you can relate to the older brother at all, I pray God breaks and melts your heart that you fall in love again with a God of the universe who sees you and loves you in a way that might freak you out if you fully understood it. But that's not where grace ends either. Because on the flip side of the spectrum, there's a very different response that we have to God's love. Because some of you, when I say that out loud, that pride, some of you know that I'm talking to you. Some of you are like, Ben, that's not me at all. When I think about God's love, all it creates in me is shame. All it creates in me is guilt. I would call it worm theology because I lived it for a very long time. And that is, I'm a worm in the eyes of God. I don't deserve his love. I don't deserve his mercy. If you knew what I thought and what I did, then you would understand why I don't deserve that. That's not who you are. Don't you remember the beginning of our story? You are God's masterpiece. You are his workmanship. You were created in his image. He believed that you were worth redeeming. He believed that you were worth restoring. Both of those images are pride. Is that weird? 
Self-love, where I think I'm pretty awesome, and self-hate are both consumed with self, obsessed with self. One of them is obsessed with I'm terrible. One of them is obsessed with I'm wonderful. Grace destroys both of those things and says, you're pretty amazing because you're made in the image of God, but you're also in need of rescue, and so you're dependent on him to help you understand who you are. And the more you understand how he loves you, seeks you, pursues you, wants to know you, the more you're able to love him back, friends. It's a beautiful lesson that grace teaches us in Scripture. There's a beautiful Brennan Manning quote who wrote more on grace than any other person I know. He said this, My message, unchanged for more than 50 years, is this. God loves you unconditionally as you are and not as you should be because nobody is as they should be. It is the message of grace, a grace that pays the eager beaver who works all day long the same wages as the grinning drunk who shows up at 10 till 5, a grace that hikes up the robe and runs breakneck toward the prodigal reeking of sin and wraps him up and decides to throw a party, no ifs, ands, or buts. This grace is indiscriminate compassion. It works without asking anything of us. Grace is sufficient even though we huff and puff with all our might to try to find something or someone it cannot cover. Grace is enough. Jesus is enough. There's this beautiful old story I doubt many of you know because it's, I think it comes out of like the early 1600s, a Spanish author named Cervantes who wrote Man of La Mancha, which they created a play out of in maybe the 60s or 70s called Don Quixote, Man of La Mancha. And it tells the story of this insane guy, literally, this guy who's kind of lost his grip on reality. He's a Spaniard who believes that he's a knight. He calls himself a knight errant, and he believes that he's on a quest, but even he isn't quite sure what the quest is for. And in part of, uh, I mean, they made it into a play, and that play became a movie. None of them are great. I'm just going to warn you if you try to go to seek it out. But the story is amazing. But, for example, he believes in one scene that these windmills are actually giant real monsters. And so he rides up with his sword and is attacking these windmills because they believe that they're the monsters that are keeping him from his quest. And so his grip on reality is just slightly off, okay? But oftentimes in in plays, the fool is actually the wisest person in the story. And you find that in Cervantes' book. And so here's the scene that I want to paint for you. He walks into a bar, into this, into this brothel, and there's a prostitute there named Aldanza. And in Cervantes' original book, she is not pretty. She's pretty, like, uh, kind of ugly, kind of masculine, and has been used and takes, takes a great deal of pride in the fact that she is in control of being used for her body um, and hates him and everyone else. Rough, rough woman. He sees her, Aldanza, and believes that this is his beautiful princess. He calls her Dulcinea because Aldanza is too common a name. He says, oh, you are not Aldanza, you are my Dulcinea. And she is angry. She thinks he's making fun of her. So she cusses him out, tries to have him thrown out, and he will not stop. He will not stop calling her Dulcinea. He will not stop professing his love for her, telling her how beautiful she is. This common person that he's like, no, 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 you're not common, you're beautiful. There's this one scene, I I think I grabbed the lyrics of just part of one of the things Aldanza says. This is Aldanza's response. 
Can't you see what your gentle insanities do to me? Rob me of anger and give me despair. Blows and abuse I can take and give back again. Tenderness I cannot bear. So please, torture me now with your sweet dulcineas no more. I am no one. I'm nothing. I'm only Aldonza the whore. What's crazy is he won't stop. He continues to call her Dulcinea. He continues to talk about how beautiful she is. He continues to talk about this picture of her that he has in, her mi- in his mind. And slowly you watch her change. Until by the end of their story, she's starting to believe the things that he sees in her. Now that's one thing when an insane person speaks that out loud. It's a whole nother thing when the God of the universe speaks that out loud over you and says, I see you for who you are, and I died for who you are, and who you are is worth redeeming in my eyes, no matter how you think about yourself. So you come into this room and your heart is cold. The Lord loves you and wants to meet you in that space, I promise. You come in this space and your heart is broken and you're like, I can't be loved. You guys, grace has... Grace does the exact same thing. It picks you up and it brings you into his throne room and reminds you who you really are. This is the core of the Christian faith. Responding to God's love, his forgiveness, his mercy and grace. Underneath your seat, you have a little uh, uh, thing of communion. I don't know what they're called. A little communion cup. And we have all different kinds of backgrounds in the room, so I want to say this out loud. Because some traditions, uh, it's a little bit weird to just take communion with a group of people when you're not in your home church. And if, so if that makes you uncomfortable at all, feel free to not take. This is an optional response that you are allowed to take or not take as you see fit tonight. But I want to talk about what communion is. Communion is simply a reminder of God's love and care and concern to come after you, that you are loved like the prodigal, that you are loved as much as Simon the Pharisee. Do you know what's, what's crazy? In, in the passage that we're in, the most, I haven't even talked about the person who created all of this, because I think the most beautiful picture that we have of worship in this is the woman who comes to Jesus's feet, that he doesn't stop, he doesn't correct, she just responds to him. She just gives what she has, which is perfume and her tears. And that's the offering she lays at his feet. It's genuine. It's embarrassing. It's authentic. It's a response to being loved. And tonight, I want to play a song for you, just not personally, but like through the sound system. Um, The song that that you're going to hear, the first half of this song is our cry out to God. The song will kind of get big, and then it'll get really quiet. And then the song changes in that moment to God speaking out over us, his truth over us. And so if you're comfortable during that second part where God sings back out over us, I would love for you to take communion as a response during that time. And again, if that's weird for you, feel free to not take. But just as a reminder that you're loved so much that he's willing to sacrifice for you. And let those words wash over you. Again, half the song is our cry out to the Lord and then his cry out over us. Let me pray and we'll start that. 
Father, thank you for your love. We love because you first loved us. That's it. It is a response. The only way we can fulfill the greatest commandment is to know our need for forgiveness from you. And so in a new school year, I pray that you'd help us to start right, to start a foundation in grace. I pray for those whose hearts are cold tonight that need broken back open. Jesus, you'd meet us in that space. I pray for those who are tender and walk in with a great deal of self-hatred and shame or guilt, that you'd break that apart too, Christ. Your love and your grace and your mercy would win tonight. Thank you for your body and your blood spilled for us and the way that we get to be reminded of that. Love you, Jesus, in your name. Amen.